0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe, Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Morgan. Morgan has been working in the substance abuse field since 2007. She's been clean and sober since May 10th, 2005. Morgan grew up in an alcoholic home and felt the consequences of the disease of addiction very early on. Her substance use began at age 10 and quickly escalated to daily heroin use after being prescribed opiates from an injury in high school. After facing homelessness and arrest, Morgan entered treatment and began her recovery journey, first addressing her addiction and later addressing growing up in an alcoholic home and being an adult child of an alcoholic. Morgan is now married and has two young boys, raising them in a recovering home with her husband, who is also in long-term recovery. You guys, this is such a good one. Stick around for episode 27. Let's do this. All right, Morgan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having
1: me. I'm so excited.
0: So, you've been a day one listener? I have, yes. How did you find the podcast?
1: So, I spend a lot of time in my car for work and I wanted to, I got really sick of speaker tapes. So, I wanted to listen to something new that could really kind of support me in recovery. And I came across the podcast and I listened to your first episode and I was like,
0: yep, nope, this is it. So, <laughs> awesome. This is it. I love it. That's so cool. Well, we're really excited to have you. Okay. So you got sober at 19. I did. Yes. We have that in common. Do you get a lot of people who tell you like, I spilled more alcohol than you drank
1: and all that jazz? I did in the beginning and a friend of mine who had been sober a couple years at that point, told me to respond with, well, I didn't spill any because I'm a real alcoholic.
0: Ooh, I like that. Burn. Burn, Yeah, burn. Um, How long have you been sober?
1: I have been sober about 14 and a half years in May, 2020. I'll celebrate 15 years.
0: That is awesome so cool. So things have to get really, my experience, right, at night getting sober at 19, like when you really hit that bottom, you're like, oh my gosh, someone help me. I'm going to die. Or in my case, I'm not dying fast enough. It has to get really bad, right?
1: It's funny. um, I was actually listening to your episode with your husband today and talking about reaching this point of of desperation. And I didn't hit that until I had a couple years sober. I really... wow. um, got sober because I didn't want to go to prison. And I think that's a damn good reason to get sober.
0: Any reason Um, is a
1: good reason, right? (laughs) And that's what I say. You know, There's no wrong reason to get sober. There's no wrong reason to come to, um, for me, AA. So I kind of stuck and stayed until the miracle happened. So did you grow up in an alcoholic family? I did, very much so. Uh, Very much an alcoholic home, um, alcoholic family, alcoholic zip code. (laughs) Um, so I, I grew up in, um, a home where both of my parents were alcoholic, are alcoholic. I can say for certain one of them, at least because she's in recoverable, she's sober and identifies as an alcoholic, very much a middle-class family that, uh, worked hard and played hard.
0: And so what was, so your, both your parents were an alcoholic and one of them is now clean and sober. She's dry. She's dry. Uh, right. Okay. So yes. she's, she's clean. She's abstaining. She's abstaining. Well, you know, I guess start somewhere. And you grew up in an alcoholic zip code. What's that?
1: <laughs> I grew up in a small town just south of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, it's exactly like it is on TV. I grew up in a suburb of Baltimore uh, that was very small. All of my friends, we grew up together. Our parents grew up together. Our grandparents Mm. grew up together. There was not, and I'm sure a lot of people say this, but there was not much to do besides for drinking. A lot of field parties, bonfires, and uh, we grew up on the water. So lots of beer, lots of beer.
0: And uh, what what were some of the messages around alcohol that you received as a kid?
1: That's... It's interesting because it was never really, it was just kind of a fact of a life for our family that there was always alcohol involved. What I picked up, I don't know if this was told to me or learned over the years, was as long as you fulfill your responsibilities, right. take care of your family, pay the bills, you can drink however you want.
0: Right, right. That was that was actually a very similar. So, And that is a message, right? The message mm-hmm. is like, Alcohol is okay as long as you keep it under control. Alcohol is a necessity. Sure. Alcohol is helpful. Alcohol is a tool, which you know it was a tool. Were your parents happily married? It you, you 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 they were selling drugs at a certain point. What how how did that how did that fit into the small town th- part?
1: It's funny. My mom didn't tell me about the selling of cocaine until a couple years ago. She oh, was so telling you didn't know at the time. Me, no, no. She had just recently told me that in the first home that they brought me home from, you know, her and my dad were selling Coke to be able to use Coke. And my mom had a cocaine induced panic attack and begged God to keep her alive that night. um and if, if that boxhole prayer, if you get me out of this, I'll never use Coke again. And she said she never really did after that. And then they just stopped the coke and only drank. She's like, um,
0: haha! I didn't mention all the other things,
1: <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of whatever. Whatever you present to the world is perception. Perception is reality. And if everyone thinks everything's okay, then everything is okay.
0: Right, right. And was everything okay
1: on the outside? Yeah, we had uh, a single family home, two cars, dog. You know, I played sports. Both my parents worked. You know, So very normal on the outside, but inside growing up, it was always unknown if my dad or my mom were going to be fighting, if they were going to be happy, if a plate was going to get thrown, if I was going to get spanked a little bit too much that night. Um, it was just really unpredictable, very, very unpredictable. And do you have siblings? I have a brother who was 10 years younger than me. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. So I was an only child. Until I was ten. Wow,
0: and uh, and he comes along. What's that like?
1: He comes along um, very unexpectedly. You can imagine. And my, I was so excited to have a baby. I thought he was my baby. I thought I couldn't wait to have a baby in the house. I was. I'm the oldest of a gaggle of grandkids, so I've always been around children. I love children, love babies, and he comes around. And I was ten. Uh, he he comes home, and, and two weeks after my mom brings my brother home, my dad says, "I'm having an affair, and I'm leaving." Oh, yes. And eventually, he then goes on to marry this woman and kind of abandon us and so start what's, a family with her. What's
0: what's the ten? What's going on for the ten-year-old Morgan? Like we have okay, the baby comes home. Baby's two weeks old. Mom's probably stressed because she's two weeks old, mm-hmm. and. Two weeks where you you were happy, right? Like that was exciting. And then, what is the thought that that comes for you when dad's leaving?
1: It's funny. I have very little memory of childhood. I think that's kind of coping. Yeah, Yeah, um, my brain's way of coping. And I remember what I was wearing that day. I remember you know what I was eating for breakfast before I went to school when I found out. And it almost was like my world just kind of shattered. Yeah, Um, and. My mom. I just didn't know what to think. I don't remember feeling like, "Oh, this is my fault. I did this," but just shattered and kind yeah. of, just kind of in awe of how things qu- change so quickly.
0: Did you blame your brother at all? No, never. Yeah, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. no, never. So he leaves. He leaves your mom and marries this woman. Were you at the wedding?
1: No. Uh, so that that period between him leaving and him marrying her, were really tumultuous. There were just a handful of visits that I had with my dad. In those visits was the time that I took my first drink, my first like real drink that I sought out uh, the first time I got drunk, and some abuse from my dad. And the after the abuse, I, uh, I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell anyone about the abuse. And just refused to visit him, and after that, he moved to California, across the country, got married, has this family, hasn't contacted us since.
0: Since you were eleven years old, mm-hmm. what was the what what was the abuse?
1: There was one instance of sexual abuse and a lot of continuous emotional abuse, uh, verbal abuse, and. Some physical abuse, um, but there was one instance where he um, sexually assaulted me, abused. I don't really know what you call it, but. Wow. I'm so sorry. That's pretty horrible. Yeah, horrendous. And immediately there's shame surrounding it. Immediately it became a secret that I can't tell anyone. Did he tell you not to tell anybody? I I don't really remember. I would imagine. I don't know why um an eleven year old's immediate instinct is to hide this secret. I yeah. But I did. And I didn't tell my family until I was maybe fourteen or fifteen. Do you think that alcohol was involved in the assault? I don't it wasn't on my end, but on his end, yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked that because I think so much of our traumas are the result of Alcoholism and the mental illness that comes down to us from other people's untreated illnesses, and which is so much a part of the value of the intergenerational value of working on ourselves because you can overtly bring down that trauma, but you Mm -hmm. can it can also be small things on a daily basis that bring that down. So Okay, so you didn't talk to dad. That's that. I mean, from there on, the world changes, right? The world. Absolutely. A, it's a whole drastically, new Drastically.
1: Yeah. Drastically changes.
0: And you had started drinking for the first time. So you got drunk. Did the alcohol numb the pain from the abuse for you?
1: Absolutely. Immediately. I took my first real drink that I sought out because prior to that, I'd had sips of beer. I played right. bartender. Right. I knew how to tap a keg. <laughs> Very not normal year <laughs> for someone less than ten, but I was with my best friend, and we steal these two long neck bud lights out of my dad's fridge and put them in my little blue corduroy book bag. Run into the woods, and I instinctively knew how to open a bottle of beer, and immediately I'm drinking for effect. Stealing, I'm lying, I'm hiding, and I took that drink, and everything just kind of shifted, and. I had the reaction like when Dorothy gets to Oz and everything's in Technicolor for the first time, or um, you don't notice the air conditioners running until it shuts off. Everything just kind of shifted in my world. And immediately I knew I had found something. I didn't know that I couldn't call it my solution, but it definitely gave me the effect that I was looking for. And shortly after that, I got drunk for the first time and that kind of sealed the deal. That was also at my dad's house, and. It was off of boxed wine. It was Franzia White Zinfandel out of a big-
0: Oh, um, the good stuff. <laughs> the good stuff. Oh, so yeah. I pe- that's sure. where
1: I pe- I peaked at. The, that's for about- sure. For
0: sure. Um, for sure. That's the class. It hit the class ceiling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, hit it out of the park on that one. And I loved the effect produced by alcohol immediately. Mm-hmm. And I remember my dad telling me, you're a funny drunk. And I had zero consequences- and that was the beginning of this sense of entitlement that I can drink this way. You also got approval from your dad. Right. Very much so. Very much so. So immediately I had these very negative um, reinforcements for drinking to get drunk. And every opportunity after that, I made the conscious effort to only drink if I could get drunk. If I couldn't get drunk, I didn't want to drink. What What's the point? Right. And that's all she wrote. <laughs>
0: So two things happened, right? You did very well in school and it's your story. Christiana is so right because your story, I relate to it so much. There's like so much in it that is parallel, which is doing really well in school. You were, you were, you know, like at some point you had a scholarship and, and we had the same thought, which was if I keep my life together, if I stay on track, whatever that looks like, then all of this other stuff I can do as long as I present to the world what they need to see. And then everything else I can medicate, I can, you know, anesthetize with alcohol and drugs, but I have to keep this stuff on track. And obviously that stops working at a certain point. You're living this double life. It looks, you, 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 you were in the orchestra, you played sports, you held a job, like, did those people know what was going on?
1: Um, School didn't really know. My soccer team kind of knew because every, I mean, we were teenagers. So of course there were parties, of course there was drinking, but I don't think they knew the extent. And then my job, everyone knew. I was actually a telemarketer. And Everybody. Okay, we got to
0: end this. We got to end this call right now. That's it. (laughs) You're on my four step.
1: Uh, It was horrible. And we, our bosses, our managers were in their 20s and they were young women and they knew everything that we did. And it was just kind of okay. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. People are hanging up anyway. So you might as well be drunk. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Seems reasonable. Um, But then you had an injury. I did.
1: I had an injury probably in the ninth or tenth grade. Um, I'd gotten burned pretty badly on my hand. Oh wow! And what I, <laughs> I was stoned and Naturally. wanted to make iced tea and was pouring Ice boiling tea. water. Random, mm-hmm. very strange. Only a, like somebody who's high things like that. I need some iced tea and went to go pour the boiling water in a pitcher and the pitcher slipped and the Uh, boiling water came directly on my hand. Very painful, very, very painful. And I got taken to the emergency room uh, by my aunt because my mom was at work and they gave me a bottle of, I guess, hydrocodone at that point. And I took the first one and after maybe 15 minutes, it's not working. Let me take another one. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. And felt the effect and I loved it and I took the whole bottle that day. Yeah. The whole bottle was gone in a day. And
0: did you know what you were using? like were you like oh these are opiates
1: or oh I've heard about this. like did you have any totally. idea? Yeah, okay. Totally. Totally. Okay. Um opiates have been on the scene in that in in the town that I grew up in for a long time. It was very very common. To be using painkillers, buying pills. Okay, so you um, knew about this stuff mm-hmm, very much. So
0: you talked. Uh, your mom was an alcoholic, and and you talked a bit about that. Two things. Okay, she was. You were, she was a daily drinker, right? How much was very she much. drinking daily?
1: Um, she would get a case of beer after work and drink the whole thing, like 20, 24 pack kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Yep, anywhere between a twelve pack and a and a twenty four pack. Okay, and. Would she appear wasted? Over over the course of the night, yes. You know, she would, by the end of the night, she would be slurring. She would be kind of falling down a little bit, and she would eventually pass out. So she,
0: and she had, you had this younger brother that was 10 years younger. Did you find yourself in the adult take care of everything mode if your mom totally. was incapacitated? Totally. Very
1: much. Yep. I remember doing his homework with him, getting ready for bed, you know, kind of taking care of him as much as I could.
0: Were you close to your mom or did you have any resentments? How did you feel about her, towards her when all this was going on?
1: So kind of around puberty for me, it shifted. And my mom and I had a really difficult relationship. We fought very, very regularly. I was rebelling and trying to push the envelope as much as I could. And she was just trying to hold it together as best as she could. There was also this, you know... (laughs) I used it a lot, like you drink all the time. Mm -hmm. Why can't I drink all the time? And the you're fourteen is just not a good enough answer for me. (laughs) Right, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm 14 and I'm taking care of all these household duties too. So, you know, I'm the parent, the adult. Why can't I drink? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. I totally get I totally get that. And so what was the thing? So you you go off on opiates. Tell me about your adventure into the land of
1: opiates. <laughs> it was... it, it is an adventure. It's an adventure, that's for sure. You know, the hydrocodone, you know, quickly became Percocet and, and using pills as often as I can get them, um, buying them as often as I could. And that transitioned into oxycotton which, you know, I had a a group of friends that I found that all did pills. Mm -hmm. And when that became expensive, because it does, prescription pills are much more expensive than heroin. And I think I tried heroin for the first time when I was 16, um, Mm -hmm. growing up just south of Baltimore. Um, You can imagine how easy it is Mm -hmm. to get heroin. I'm driving, my friends are driving. It's a 10-minute drive into the city It's next thing you know, you're on the wire. It, yeah, basically, basically, (laughs) I'm hanging out with Omar and a shotgun, obviously. (laughs) So, so you,
0: you know, I just want to touch on that. That you know, and this is just, just for kind of for our listeners, which is, I can't tell you how many times I've seen and you being almost 15 years sober. I know that you have had the same. I don't even have to ask. I know you've had the same experience, which is the amount of people where that get. Hooked on opiates through prescription medication, which makes it feel safe. There's something about the prescription, the dosage, the you know officiality of it that makes it feel safer than this than than heroin on the street. But what happens is that that risk taking behavior and that reward and that cycle gets stronger and stronger to the point where it is not an option it's a necessity to go get street drugs it's a necessity to turn to heroin and you know when you start and i can speak for myself my guess is you were the same but please fill us in which is that when you start with the opiates when you started with the opiates there was no belief that you were going to end up where you ended up
1: absolutely not absolutely not i had i had goals i had aspirations yeah. i wanted to be a physical right. therapist and You know, there's this line in the big book that says alcohol, and I interchange it because I go to AA, alcohol ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Mm -hmm. And I lost the power of choice, which I believe inherently is what makes me an alcoholic and an addict. I began using against my will every day, every day that is for me
0: and i am you know revisiting i'm doing some per, like deep diving into some personal work because i too like you after having kids like had to I was like whoa you know emotions all this stuff came up that i thought i had put put to to put to rest but really you know looking back at wow like i truly did things against my own will. I used and did whatever it took to use against my own will. I mean, I remember having thoughts where I was like, I am not going to use that. Not because of any, you know, honorable effort, but because I was like trying to save it, you know, like for Mm -hmm. the rest of the day, like Mm -hmm. I understood, you know, portioning or whatever it was. It didn't matter what, whether it was in my best interest in using or not. I could not make a different decision. My brain was stuck on throttle, on, on. It just, I couldn't stop using. It was was a decision that had been made without my consent.
1: Correct. And especially with opiates, you know, and the same goes for alcohol and benzos. There's a physical dependence Mm -hmm. that comes Mm -hmm. in addition to the mental obsession. Totally two separate dependency. You know, oftentimes, you know, my mind would want to not use, but I start to get withdrawal symptoms and I have no choice. I have no choice. And it's it's tricky. Um, You know, I'm I'm continually at this point to, you know, using other stuff in addition to pills and heroin. I'm still drinking, I'm still smoking weed, I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, um, still doing a lot of other things. And, you know, I, as soon as somebody gave me the option. I was always looking for the next thing. Um, very much excitement-driven. What am I going to miss? Who's going to be there? What are we going to do? How are we going to get it? Where are we going to go? Um, I loved that thrill and the excitement. And It's like that pathological FOMO. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so I always had something driving me, whether it was physical withdrawal symptoms, mental obsession, serious FOMO. (laughs) I was always driven by something that always convinced me to use or drink.
0: Yeah. I I heard a guy talk about it as chemical coping. And uh, I thought that I just, that 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 so resonated. Like, yeah, I was chemically coping with all of the things that was going on in my life. You know, for me, one of the things that was very intertwined with my drug use were my relationships with men. And particularly as a teenage girl, what I found was you go out there and I, I don't know what it's like these days, because it's, it's it, I know I can see that the, climates, the drug use climate's a bit different. But in those days, I you needed a male advocate going into that world and you needed like someone to take care of you. And, and I needed someone to take care of me anyway. And, um, and so I found that in a, you know, very controlling abusive relationship, which was a huge part of my disease and using you had some of that too. Tell us about that.
1: Oh boy. Uh, So I Around the time that I was graduating high school, I had met a guy through some mutual friends, and I was just enamored with this guy. He was um, a couple years older than me. I was at, I was 17 at this point. I was enamored, and he was a middle high school dropout from Baltimore City who lived with his parents, and he was God's gift. Winner. Winner. Yes. I had a phenomenal picker and I really thought he was it. And around that time, um, I graduated high school. I was supposed to go to college. I, you know, but around that same time, all of those things that were keeping me accountable and keeping plates up in the air, like school and soccer and violin and my job were immediately done because I didn't have to be accountable to or soccer, or any of those things. So immediately the things that I was keeping it together for were no longer there. I also had a friend who went to treatment that year and, you know, came home and told my family all of this stuff in addition to alcohol that I was doing. Rude. Um, and rude. And in my family, my, fam- my mom was buying my alcohol. I was drinking with my mom. Very sick. Very, very sick. So my family was very well aware of my drinking. And they <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, we got that. Why are you here? <laughs> yeah. Um, very, very well aware of my drinking. and But they were not aware of all of the drugs mm. that I was doing. Okay. And um, you know, it's funny. I don't think they've ever said this, but my perception is, you know, it's okay to be an alcoholic, but you cannot be a drug addict. Mm.
0: We are uh, alcoholics. Right, <laughs> right. Be- because substances have
1: moral character. Correct. And an alcoholic is way better than a heroin addict. Right, right. And so this friend comes home from treatment and I don't remember her talking about the 12 steps or meetings or sobriety, but uh, she did tell my mom all of the extracurricular activities I was partaking in and it was not cool. And my family had an intervention and they said, you can either go to treatment or you can't be here. And I said, peace out, Cub Scout. I am not going to treatment. I do not have a problem because I have this man to take care of. Uh Uh-huh. There it is. And I took this tornado that was in my mom's house that was just wreaking havoc everywhere and put it in his family's house. And we were selling drugs out of his mom's house and they didn't appreciate that. They did not like that. And almost as quickly as I moved in, I think I moved in without anyone's permission. I just showed up one day <laughs> and I'm um, here. like, hi, I'm here. Yeah, it's me. And as quickly as I was there, we were kicked out. They're like, you can't be doing this. You're insane. Um, you have to go. And that was the summer of 2003. And there's a cha- there's a part in the big book in the doctor's opinion that says our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. and my normal reaction to that was, I'll live in a tent.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. With So I got into treatment and was talking about my very similar version of this. And I was like, yeah. And then we went camping. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, Expl- explain your... So like, let me get this straight. In the middle of all this drug use, Ashley, you decide to like go on a nature camping trip. I'm like, well, it was in a park, but you know, and we sort of didn't have anywhere else tomato, to Tomato, tomato. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, we're definitely camping. We're not homeless. We're camping.
1: Right. And that's how I justified it. I I, I wasn't homeless. I was just sleeping in a tent. Yeah. Under a bridge <laughs> in South Baltimore. Oh, But it's goodness. camping. Yeah. And it's funny, the park that we had our little tent set up and later got condemned for radioactive waste. Oh um, my gosh. That's funny. Funny. And it really wasn't that bad because I had my solution, my man and my drugs. And, and that was kind of the theme. As long as I had my solution, it was okay. I was willing to pay that price for the effect produced by drugs and alcohol. And it was a pretty decent summer. I could come as go as I please. I can have my friends over. I didn't have to pay <laughs> any bills. I can stay out <laughs> as late as I want. Right. And that lasted through like October, like this time of year in Maryland. It's the weather shifts pretty quickly mm-hmm. from warm to cold. We have no fall. It's really just summer, winter. And it sucked <laughs> to be homeless. Yeah. And quote unquote, camping in October. So we manipulate our way back in um, to his family's house and make all these promises that I think that, you know, inside I wanted to keep. I wanted to be able to get my stuff together and get a job and be, quote unquote, normal. I wanted those things. But again, I, I didn't have the choice to be normal. Right. And I'd gotten a settlement check from a car accident that I was in. And the only responsible thing I did was I bought this junker car and blew the rest on like baby fat and drugs. And um, baby and, fat. <laughs> and this is the early 2000s. No, no, so. it's okay. I for, we,
0: you're forgiven. We won't hold it against you.
1: <laughs> so when we get kicked out again, shocker, because we're still doing the same things. This is maybe like Thanksgiving of 2003. I said, it's fine. We have a car. We'll just sleep in my car. So it's me and this boyfriend and our we, we somehow picked up a dog along the way, an 85-pound dog, and <laughs> we're living in my car. And I thought it was fine. Like, it's got leather seats. It's got a sunroof. It's fine. And didn't even bat an eye, didn't even faze me. And so I said to myself, self you need to do something and get your life together. And that was not go to treatment or not use drugs, not use alcohol. I made what I know to be now a geographical cure. And most people, when they choose to go somewhere to kind of jumpstart their life, they go somewhere better, like California or New York or anywhere. But I go to Southwest Baltimore. (laughs) which is not the area that you go to start your life. (laughs) Kickstart. Um, Yeah, that's not like a propelling business move in any way, shape or form. So I moved to the the corner of Sargent and Austin in um, Southwest Baltimore in a little neighborhood called Pigtown. That is rough. And I had a little bit of money and I rented a room for a week for like $25 from a guy who actually was my boyfriend's uncle, who was a daily crack user. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, win, jump-starting my Mm -hmm, life. mm -hmm. And around that time, my boyfriend said, you know, you can kick your dope habit smoking crack. (laughs) And I picked up a pesky little crack cocaine habit, hated coke before that, hated it, but immediately fell in love all over again. And the week came and went and I didn't have rent money and back in the car.
0: So during this time, you know, Baltimore in these areas was predominantly black. Is that accurate? (laughs) Correct. Okay. And and I'm going to go, I think you are Caucasian. I am very Caucasian. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
1: Was that an issue at all? Not for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I figured. Not for me. I definitely stood out like a sore thumb. Right. Okay. And, but I also had this appeal to me that I was. You had baby fat you know, jeans on. So, correct. Correct. I just kind of changed who I was to fit right. into my surroundings. Right. And I always had my dog with me and they were scared of my dog. So I didn't feel too, too terrified, you know, but I, it was, it's funny. I was still, I was polite. I was nice to my drug dealers and they didn't mind me. I wasn't, you know, um, so it was, it was just kind of par for the course. I just kept it moving. I didn't really bat an eye at anything, you know, so I move out or I get kicked out because I don't have $25 to pay my rent. And, um, back in the car, and very quickly, I lent out quote unquote, lent out my car to a drug dealer, which was kind of standard operating procedure um for, you know people who had cars who were drug addicts. They would just lend them to their drug dealers. and I didn't get it back shocker. <laughs> and uh, then this is probably like Christmas time, you know, winter of two thousand and three oh. into two thousand and four, and are you living um, in your from car that at this point? point on was? true homelessness where i'm sleeping in abandoned houses seedy seedy motel rooms that you can rent by the hour you know sleeping in carroll park which is a park in southwest baltimore very much you know true homelessness
0: hi i'm peter Loeb, ceo and co-founder of lion rock recovery we're proud to sponsor the Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Line Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, LionRock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no
1: commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you.
0: So in, in terms of true homelessness, what were some of the feelings and the things that were going on? And when you looked back, did it make sense how you had gotten there? Were you like, how did I, what happened? What were the kind of solutions that you thought maybe I could you know, how, how can I get out of this? Were you, were, did you know you had a substance abuse problem?
1: I knew that I had a substance abuse problem for sure because I'm using heroin and crack cocaine all mm. day, every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that um, makes it pretty clear.
1: It's pretty clear that I have a, a, a drug problem. And I would try, there's a outpatient detox that's been around forever in Baltimore where you go and you get your buprenorphine pack and you try and detox, you on your own. I did that a handful of times, but I just couldn't. And I knew that it was going to end one day. I didn't know how. I didn't know if I was going to get arrested, Mm -hmm. if I was going to get murdered, if I was going to overdose. I didn't know how it was going to end, but I knew it wouldn't be like this forever. And I would say, you know, I can stop whenever I want to. I just don't want to. Right. I even up until the day that I got clean, uh drugs and alcohol still did what I needed them to do. Right. They still worked for me, which was a really, really big barrier for me getting clean so young. You know, you hear people in the rooms talking about the drink stopped working, it wasn't doing what mm-hmm. I needed yeah. it to. Yeah. But that was not my case. I still got what I needed from the substances.
0: That's interesting. That's a really, I'm glad you shared that because I'm sure that there are other people who have that experience too. What was it like being homeless in Baltimore? It sucked.
1: (laughs) It was horrible and it was hard. And I got into a lot of really scary, traumatic situations, a lot of kind of -of out-of-body experiences where I would kind of be able to look down on myself and be like, what is going on how did I get here? I remember one instance in particular, it was around around Christmas time and I happened to be in South Baltimore, which was kind of a nicer area. And I would see the Christmas lights and I just, I remember sobbing and crying and just like, what is my life? Like, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. I'd gotten into a fight with my boyfriend, which we fought every day, super abusive. Oh, so he's still around. Oh yeah, he's still around. He's he's like my- Okay, I'm thinking your Clyde to yourself. my. No, he's the he's the Clyde to my Bonnie, and he is. But on the other hand, I can look at it that like he protected me in a lot of instances. He didn't pro- protect me from him, but he protected me from everything else. So I was still very safe, or I felt very safe with him.
0: And that's a that's an interesting point too, which is how a lot of women get a pimp in the prostitution area because they're being ke- they're not being kept safe from the pimp, but they are being kept safe from everyone else, and and that's a sacrifice people are willing to make when you're in that situation and you don't have a lot of options. Sure,
1: it was you know, and I have I have this one aunt who is the only one in my family who is able to look at him in that sense. Everybody else in my family thinks me being a heroin addict is his fault, right? Um, <laughs> which is easy for them. Right. Easy, right. I get that. You know, but he very much kept me, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I'd be alive if I hadn't been with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I was wondering, like, I, I, I was thinking you. So what is the time span between the hand burn getting, you know, when you got the opiates and homeless at Christmas with the boyfriend? How long, what, how long, much time went was between those two things?
1: Um, about four and a half years, five years. And if
0: if you had, if I had come into that emergency room, handed you those pills, and said, in four and a half years, you are going to be homeless with nothing on the streets of Baltimore as a result of the pills in this bottle, what would
1: you have said? I'd say, give me the pills. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: It would have been. It would have been unbelievable.
1: Correct. And I st- and looking back on my life now, had I not lived it, I wouldn't have believed it.
0: Totally. And that, I, I, yeah, I was saying that earlier, like I, I have this new therapist who I love and her talking and I'm telling my story to her in detail that I don't like deeper detail that I don't usually share. And I just, it's what, you know, I have a hard time saying this stuff because it sounds so insane. It's so often hard to even believe that the things happened that happened. So you mentioned that you went to prison and that that was why you stopped using. What uh, take us to getting sober?
1: So I went to jail. I didn't go to prison. I didn't want to go to prison. So that's why I wanted to get sober. So I had broken into my mom's house. I'd been obviously a criminal at this point um, to sustain my um, addiction, Breaking into cars, breaking into houses, stealing purses on the street. And I broke into my mom's house and took everything. Every It's funny. She has joked about it over the years in anniversaries that she's been at where she tells a room full of recovering alcoholics that Morgan um, took everything in the house with a power cord, even if it didn't work. Um, that I stole a box of telephones that didn't work anymore. To try and pawn them, <laughs> and you know, I took. It was shortly after Christmas of two thousand and four. I stole all of my little brother's birthday presents, savings bonds, um, anything that I could that I thought would fund me getting high. Did the same thing to my boyfriend's family's house, and it's it's tragic. You know, my I think about it now. My brother endured a lot. I can't even imagine. What it was like for my brother to come home from school that day to see his house broken into, all of his presents gone. My brother's birthday is in January. It was after that. Um, All of his birthday presents, Christmas presents, everything was just gone. And how traumatic that must have been for a nine-year-old at that point. And they knew it was me, that his sister... Um, stole everything. I have a nine year old son, almost nine year old son now, and it's just heartbreaking to think about. So my brother, I will say, endured a lot, you know, even with me being out of the home, he still knew I was an active using drug addict um, and coupled with my mom's drinking at home, he really got the short end of the stick in that in that world. But my mom knew it was me and called the police. And she got a warrant out for my arrest. Uh, my boyfriend's family did the same. And we um, we kind of waited until the day came where I got arrested. And I got arrested on May 10th of 2005 and um, had no intention of that being the last day that I used, but it was. I went to jail and fully expecting to be let out on my own recognizance or a bail or something of that nature um, because I had never been arrested up until that point. I had escaped a lot of close calls with the legal system and I didn't. They said no bail. And I got put on suicide watch in jail. The The nurse who did my intake said, do you, do you ever think about hurting yourself? And I was semi-joking when I said, well, I'm a drug addict and I'm using heroin and smoking crack every day. It's not really that fun to live. And she that's not something they take lightly. And they put me in seclusion in um, a suicide watch, which means no clothes, no bra, no underwear, no shoes, in a holding cell with a rip-proof blanket and gown. And that is how I detoxed. I detoxed oh. in jail on suicide watch oh. for about probably a week, week and a half. Um, no medication. Oh my god! Uh, so it was pretty. It was it was horrendous. Um, it was It was horrible. Um, yeah and
0: and for people who don't know, you know when you detox from heroin, your skin is on fire, you have diarrhea, you can't sleep, your eyes just do this weird thing where they constantly water, you vomit, you poop your pants, you I mean your body just loses it, just and I can't mm-hmm. and then i don't I don't know what that would be like with crack on top of it, but I'm sure it didn't help.
1: Yeah, I was in addition to the heroin withdrawal, um very much I'm not a psychiatrist or a clinician, but I am going to go out on a limb and say I was in um cocaine induced psychosis. I was hearing things, Ugh. hearing my name, I was hearing a lighter flick, you know, I was so paranoid. It was it was horrendous. I also hadn't been sleeping at that point because I'm using so much crack. I hadn't slept in What felt like weeks, I wasn't eating, I wasn't showering. So malnourished on top of it. It was just a mess. It was horrible.
0: Yeah, so so you come out of that and and what happens?
1: So I finally am well enough and off of suicide watch where I go into kind of general population, still have no bail, finally get to use the phone and I call my family. My mom is not speaking to me, shocker. I call my grandmother and I say, you have to get me out. I promise I'll get it together. I'll get a job. I'll go to school. And my family tells me now um, for the first time in years, we know where you are. We know you're safe. We know we're not going to pick up right. the paper and see that you've been raped and murdered. Yeah. And I cursed her out and I said, I don't need you. And I hung up on her. And, you know, I actually, I stayed in jail for about six weeks and In that time, I actually signed up to go to a a meeting. I went to an NA meeting that an institution committee had brought into the jail because I was dying to get out of my cell. And I remember being in this meeting and reading, I think I read, It Works How and Why. And I remember feeling so sorry for this speaker that brought this meeting into jail. I'm in my jail jumpsuit and i'm thinking oh my god i feel so bad for her like this is her life she has to bring meetings into jail <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing so delusional so delusional and that was my first experience with any kind of 12 step fellowship and you know after a period of time my my family's taking my calls and they said we we got you an attorney we're getting you out get whatever you have you're going to go to phoenix And I thought I was going to rehab in Phoenix, Arizona, like a celebrity rehab with Britney Spears. And uh, it was not that. We wind up at Phoenix Recovery Center. I don't know if I'm allowed to say these names, but I wind up in a town called Edgewood, Maryland, which is about 45 minutes north of Baltimore. And I pull up and um, throw a temper tantrum in the parking lot. Saying, I'm not going in, I'm not doing this. And my aunt said, Well, if you don't want to go to prison, you're going to go. And I said, Okay, (laughs) because I'm not dumb. I know that this is going to be better than prison. And I go. And I was a peach. I was the worst patient that anyone could ever have. I cursed everyone out. I was rude. I was nasty. You know, I just did not want to be there. And, you know, I, I remember they had tried to put me into EMDR when I was in this treatment center and I threw a chair at the therapist. And a little you know, early for it. EMDR. Correct. Correct. And it's, it's something that I've kind of advocated because I work in the treatment field now that EMDR is not clinically appropriate immediately after yeah, entering no. treatment. Not a wise move. And I I made it through 28 days of treatment. And they said, you're going to go to a halfway house. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, if you don't want to go to prison, you're going to go. And I said, okay. And I wind up in a little town called Bel Air, Maryland, where I still live. And I go to a halfway house and they tell me when to get up. They tell me what to eat for breakfast. They you know, tell me to get a job, get a home group, get a sponsor, go to meetings. And that's where I found the recovery community that became my home. And um, very, very, very fortunate to be sober in Bel Air, where got exactly where my higher power wanted me to be, where I needed to be to find a solution other than drugs and alcohol. And I started going to meetings and not that I was... Super excited to do so. I was not, I had no desire to stop using. I had none. I just wanted to get through, go to go to court, not go to jail. Um, my plan was to sell drugs but not use them. Mm, good and, plan. Um, solid. You know, solid, solid aftercare plan. Solid. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> what are your financial arrangements after treatment? Oh, funny you should ask.
1: Yeah, funny. I'm a really good drug um, <laughs> drug dealer. Um, <laughs> I mean,
0: I, you know, the truth is, though, we laugh, but I know people who did sell drugs and while they were sober because they were addicted to that lifestyle. Absolutely. Like, even when they stopped using, they could not stop that. You know, the process addiction that that addiction to that Absolutely. lifestyle. So, you know, I mean, as silly as it sounds, it's actually not an uncommon thing.
1: Sure you know, but the halfway house, I got me a job at Wendy's. Um, I think, I think you have like a term for an early recovery job. Like a get so, well job. Yeah. a get well job. And um, my get well job was working in the drive-thru at Wendy's. And, you know, I'd gotten a sponsor who had about a year and a half, two years sober. And I, I thought that if I went to meetings and I read the steps um, or read out of a big book that meant I was working the steps. And I think I did the best that I could with what I had, you know, but I I was lucky to get sober with a lot of old timers who told me the truth about my condition, who told me really kind things like sit down and shut up (laughs) and (laughs) take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. They would say things like, "Um, you have two ears and one mouth and you should play the odds. And they, um, they said, we're going to give you a job and your job is to, to clean ashtrays. Um, I was going to this AA clubhouse where you could still smoke. And I cleaned ashtrays and cussed and screamed and um, threw the ashtrays. And that's kind of where I learned the first lesson. The biggest lesson in my recovery is that you don't have to like it. You just have to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Act your way into new thinking.
1: Yep. yep. And you can't live your way into right thinking. You have to think your way or you can't think your way into right living. You have to um, live your way into right thinking. And that is exactly what happened to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. So so, so during this time, you take your mom to an AA meeting.
1: I did. I did. I had celebrated a year. My mom came to my first anniversary loaded, drank the whole time going to the meeting. Um, she peed herself in the car, got up to the podium when I called on her. I don't know why I called on her, but I did. And she read the lyrics to "Hoobastank." The Reason.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I can't right now. Hold on. I died. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's, this is some real life A Star is Born shit, okay? You like, can't
1: script it. <laughs> Hoobastank? Stank? Yeah. And The Reason is You. Oh, no. <laughs> it was... Probably the single most embarrassing moment <laughs> of my entire life oh, today.
0: You know what though? I think that pro- everyone in there was like, "Oh, you qualify, baby girl. You you belong here." Like, just see, absolutely. You know they know what you had growing up. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So your mom pees herself and sings, hoop, sings you hoop a Yeah. Does she realize she has a problem at that point?
1: No. No. Oh. Okay. No. Um, totally she, normal. She, She continues drinking another couple, I think it was that year, maybe the year after, um, is in a relationship, um, moves in with a guy who's drinking with my, you know, my brother and her move into his house. They're drinking every day. She, um, when I was in treatment, she actually um, had a drunken jet ski accident and broke her neck. Um, Still continued, yeah, still continued to drink through that. And that summer of 2000 and, Either two thousand five or two thousand six, she had broken up with that boyfriend and had nowhere to go, and was um, sleeping. Her and my brother were sleeping in her car, and she would take him to uh, hotels and let him sneak in to eat the continental breakfast, and take him to school and pick him up. And one night, she was driving over one of the big bridges near our near where we live. Like a big bridge, not a little one, a big one, the Key Bridge, and pulled over and got out of the car and thought about jumping. And he's in the car. He's asleep in the car. Oh, good lord! I haven't thought about that in a long time. It just brings back a lot. And the next day, she had called me and said, "I need help." And I did what the only thing I knew how to do, and I took her to a meeting. And I took her to a meeting, and I sat with her. And afterwards, I um. Told her to sign the book and be a home group member. She had no idea what that meant, but she got a a, a white chip, you know. And I told the elder statesmen in the group, you know, that they need to take care of her, and they did. And she has been sober ever since. Wow, that's powerful. That's really powerful. How is your brother? How is he now? Mm-hmm. He's okay. Um, he is twenty three now. He'll be twenty four in January. He is it's the jury's still out um he is he's okay he's not he's not not horribly bad off he drinks and uses some substances but we don't really have that great of a relationship you know we're we're 10 years apart and majority of the you know the last 15 years i've been kind of the lame older sister who's sober <laughs> right and <laughs> um you know he shows up as much as he can so
0: yeah but he's understand.
1: okay he's okay understand.
0: And um, so at some point you started going to ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, which from my experience and understanding with others, this is an incredibly powerful experience for children who grew up in an alcoholic home and a really important one for them. What was your journey? You know, you were already in AA, you know, doing your work what was your journey to to getting to a place where you also wanted to go to ACOA
1: so me being sober i had gotten i had um did not follow direction and i started dating and i started dating my husband my now husband who was sober about a year and a half and i had 7 months and you know we have very much been the fairy tale um AA story. Both of us are still sober and in recovery. And we we were together for about five years, dating at this point, living together. And surprise, I get pregnant. And I had my son, Evan, um, December 2010. And the minute that I held him for the first time, it was the most immense amount of joy that I've ever felt in my life. But it was also very Very evident immediately of what I did not get and what I missed out on. And it brought up so many feelings that I didn't even know I had. And thank God for good sponsorship. I had a sponsor who is a double winner, uh, meaning she is in AA and Al-Anon. And after I kind of recovered from having the baby postpartum and she felt I was emotionally ready to hear it, she suggested I I start going to Al-Anon. And our focus of step work kind of moved towards Al-Anon and codependence. We, you know, codependent 12 steps. And I did that. And, you know, it it worked as well as it needed to at the time. And, you know, my relationship with my mom has been tumultuous over the last 15 years. It is not a bed of roses. And there were a lot, a lot of instances of, you know, still abandonment and let down and just really difficult um, relationship to repair. And it, I certainly wouldn't say it's repaired now. And probably about five, six, seven years of going out on, going to AA, dabbling with therapy, I still wasn't getting to the point where I felt freedom and happy, joyous, and free in in my relationships, especially with my family. And you know my sponsor god bless her in all of her infinite wisdom and timing waited until i kind of hit a bottom and said i think it's time that we take a look at this and handed me the big yellow acoa step working guide <laughs> and we have been working on that over probably the last 6 months so it's pretty new to me being You know, involved in ACOA, and it's been incredibly painful. Um, Yeah. And a very slow going, very, very slow going, you know. So I, but I feel hope for the first time that I found the solution to that problem, if you will. The spirituality of kind of adult child is very different than the spirituality I experience in my alcoholism. You know, I treat my alcoholism in, AA, but I treat that um, abandonment in al and ACOA. And you've done a lot of therapy too, right? Yes. Therapy has been kind of a double-edged sword for me. You know, I go consistently until I kind of plateau and they say, okay, you know, let's kind of cut back and come back when you need it. And I forget about everything um, <laughs> that has been, <laughs> that has been kind of my Achilles heel. Um, I, I also know that I, I need to kind of jump into some trauma therapy and um, that's scary. And getting to the point I have, I have two boys now in a career and a husband, you know, kind of getting to the, the point where I can be prepared to go into that work. Yeah.
0: What's the experiential difference between doing like being in therapy and talking about your mom and growing up in an alcoholic home versus going to ACOA? What's like the um, the actual experiential
1: difference? For me, therapy was a really great tool for me to talk about how I feel and talk about my trauma response to everything. Mm-hmm. Um but I I my biggest problem with, and maybe I just haven't found the right therapist or, or whatever, I, I felt like I wasn't given any direction on how to get unstuck. Mm. And mm. it was really great for me to have someone who was not my sponsor, not my sober network, who was not just going to give me a recovery-based response, you yep. know, pray yep. for them, <laughs> you know, right? Totally, was not the response that I needed. And It's really great for me to as an outlet, but for me, um, it has not been a method that has yielded a tremendous improvement. For me, the tools that I've learned in Al-Anon and ACOA have been far more beneficial because there's some action and there's some self-responsibility that I can take ownership of and um, changes that I can physically make in my own life that yield me the positive result that I am looking for.
0: Did you go into ACOA and realize that some things that you had always thought were normal, even after being in recovery for you know, a stretch of time, were not normal and that this group of people helped shine that
1: light? Absolutely. Absolutely. I immediately knew that what I had stumbled upon, these people understand me. These people get me in a way that I've never been understood before. Very much, you know, uh, kind of a spiritual experience in and of itself to be able to talk to people who speak that language. You know, I would talk to, you know, my sober friends, my AA friends, my support network about these feelings and my responses, and they didn't get it. You know, so for me, finding people who have been through similar experiences are able to offer me the solution that I need. Just like you get to AA and you find a, a group of people who have a common bond. I found that common bond in Al-Anon and ACOA. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how healing finding people who truly understand your experience can be. Just believing you and understanding you, That is that in and of itself is, is definitely a very healing experience.
1: For sure. It, it certainly has been. I, you know, I've I found that just in the short amount of time that I've been involved in this different aspect of my recovery, my responses have been dramatically different. Um, so I'm already starting to see that change in myself, you know, and that I know we're not in the results business, but I have a little bit of faith now. You can't, for me, I can't have faith until I have experience. And I've been through experiences recently that have grown my faith in that program and in that solution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 um, I relate a lot to that. I'm trying to get to this place where I can have faith without experience because it looks much more expedient. But, I tend to need that. yeah, you know, I think most people are like that. and And the whole idea of spirituality has been a journey for me in the program as well, trying to figure out like what that even means. And does that involve a religious God? Can I have something else? and and, and all all the different aspects. And I, I find that in this stage, after my, you know, after my boys were born, that, pieces of my childhood came back, came floated to the surface. I had healed them in the way of being the child, but I hadn't healed them in the way of becoming the mother.
1: Absolutely. Being a mother has shown a completely different light on my experience growing up. Right. Cause you, you know, have perspective. I, right. Um I have, I will say that I have found a good amount of You know, healing and being able to provide that mother relationship Mm. to my kids. But on the same, on the other side of that is a lot of resentment that that inner child is saying, Why didn't you get this? Right,
0: right. A lot of conflict. And, you know, what's so cool is like, Coming, I mean, you went from being a transient to being a mother, a wife, you know, a, a contributing member of society and have led this life of seeking and seeking healing. The journey that we're on of recovery, you know... I don't know if you relate to this, but there's so many days where it's like, I don't want to do more interpersonal or personal work. Like I just want to be a normal functioning person. Why is that so difficult? And I get resentful, you know, why can't I drink like other people? Why can't I blah, blah, blah? Why is everything, you know, have this, this difficulty attached to it? And then on the other hand, I have this program for life and I can walk into any room All over the world, and have know that I'm safe and with a group of people that understand me. And in that seeking, you know, I see, especially with parenthood, that there's this whole support system that I have built that's already built in that I have access to that a lot of people don't, and that makes life better and easier than it would have been even if I wasn't an alcoholic.
1: Sure, absolutely. I think, and every time that I get my sponsor, points me in the direction of this new 12-step fellowship. I'm like, mm-hmm. why do I have to do, I don't want to Oh yeah, have I don't want do another
0: fellowship, thank you. I-,
1: I got enough. And, you know, I get really resentful that why can't I just be a normal alcoholic that AA is enough? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and now I have to go to Al-Anon meetings and now I have to go to ACOA meetings. How am I going to do this? But, you know, I do it even if I don't like it. I don't have to like it, I just have to do it. And anytime that I push through that resentment and that, you know, inner child that's stomping her feet and saying, I don't want to do this, I always feel better. So my pain threshold is definitely different now than it was mm-hmm. prior. Yeah. Um, and I have a little bit more willingness. Yeah. Because I have, you know, I have something to base it off of.
0: What do you think that you wish someone had told you when you started on this journey? <sighs> That's a great question. Like, if you let me let me give you a better scenario of you're in jail for that six weeks, right? You've detoxed, and no one's talking to you, and and uh, you get that phone call that they're going to bail you out. What do you wish you had known then that you know now?
1: I wish I would have known that you know that the there is a solution. I had never known that someone could be sober and be comfortable. I never knew that there was such thing as recovery. I wish that I just would have known that it was possible in general, just like having seen it. Yeah, I, um, it's funny because I do have an uncle who is thirty plus years sober, but he was never around my crazy family shocker. Um, <laughs> you know, he set up a lot of boundaries and um, had his sober life elsewhere and i um got very close to him when i got sober obviously he lives he lives in the community that i live in now you know but i i just had no idea that i could be reasonably comfortable without drugs and alcohol mm, yeah it's a pretty
0: wild thing to experience and figure out well you are an amazing amazing woman morgan i relate so much to your story and you know just the the trajectory of things and It's so, I mean, what you've been through is, you know, a testament to what can be done if you put one foot in front of the other and do the work and leave the results up to, you know, the universe, God, whatever, whatever power you believe.
1: For sure. That's just, that's the only, the only thing that I know to be true is that if I do what's in front of me, um, I'm going to be taken care of very much that idea of just doing the next right thing. And if I can't do the next right thing, I just do the next thing right. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know, just doing what's in front of me. Yeah. And it has served me really well. So I keep doing it.
0: That's awesome. Well, we're so grateful for your time and your story and thank you for being a a uh, loyal listener. And I know that this story is going to help a lot of people. Thank you for coming on and sharing it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you.